The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Targeting Tigit to Extend Immunotherapy Benefits to More Cancer Patients, a Strategy to Amplify Immune Response and Enhance or Restore Anti-Tumor Activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash EBJ 860. Downloadable slides, practice aids, and additional resources are also available. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here to discuss a new strategy with immunotherapy in cancer, targeting TIGIT to extend immunotherapy benefits to more cancer patients. My name is Dr. Zev Weinberg. I'm a GI oncologist and co-director of the GI oncology program and director of the early phase clinical research program at UCLA and I'll be moderating this program. I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Sharish Gajil. Hi, Dr. Weinberg. Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Sharish Gajil. I'm the Division Chief of Division of Hematology Oncology at Henry Ford Cancer Institute and uh, Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. And we're happy to be presenting this data and some of our discussion points about this novel target. So we recognize that immunotherapy has changed the landscape of how to treat cancer patients. Most of that has been impacted by the addition of anti-PD-1, PD-L1, and CTLA-4 inhibitors. Recognizing that combination strategies are often the best way to treat patients, regardless of the cancer. But we also recognize that we still have a lot of improvement that needs to be made. There's a large proportion of patients who simply don't get enough benefit from existing immunotherapeutic strategies, and a lot of patients don't respond at all. So efforts are ongoing and have been ongoing for many years to investigate novel immunotherapy targets and novel immunotherapy strategies to see if we can both expand the group of patients who get benefit from these agents, but and equally important, to improve the outcomes of those patients beyond the existing treatment strategies that we know already work. So TIGIT, which stands for T-cell immunoreceptor with IG and ITIM domains, is a novel checkpoint that we'll be discussing today. Some of the way we'll be discussing it is with respect to mechanism of action, targeting it with antibodies that are, and other drugs that are in development. And the premise is that this will ultimately be a new option for many patients for immunotherapeutic drugs. So the first module, Sharish and I will be discussing TIGIT as a new targetable checkpoint in cancer immunotherapy. And we'll be going through some of the basic principles of TIGIT biology and discussing how combination strategies are being developed to, as mentioned, enhance the group of patients who get benefit. So we've got to keep a few things in mind. First of all, TIGIT is an inhibitory receptor of the PVR-like family. We'll be going through some of the known, known ligands and a lot of unknown aspects of this checkpoint. And we'll also be discussing the value of checking certain biomarker assays and whether certain patient selection strategies that are already being utilized for pd one and CTLA-4 inhibitors can be extrapolated to the use of anti-TIGIT-like molecules. When we look broadly at the immune system and the interplay of its role in cancer, we recognize that T cells have been the forefront of checkpoints and are themselves 
the primary cell type that of course will be stimulated or inhibited sometimes to play a role in the fight against cancer. And what I mean by that is that we all have some basic understandings of immunology and oncology and we all recognize that for many, many years it's been known that certain cancers lend themselves to immunotherapeutic strategies. We can see here on this cartoon that there's a complex continuing dynamic interplay between both T cells that are both helper T cells and natural killer cells or CD8 positive T cells with the tumor cells in the context of antigen presentation and also in the context of often a very complicated tumor microenvironment involving stromal cells, tumor associated macrophages and other cell types that certainly play a role both in the ability to recognize cancer as foreign but also sometimes to protect uh, the body from, from insult. And so tumor associated macrophages are a good example of cell types that often should not be stimulated necessarily as we get into some of the specifics of cancer immunotherapy. And, and the complex interplay is something that we've known for many years is, is not a simple process. At the moment, we have two main checkpoint inhibitors that are approved, or two main checkpoint inhibitors for which drugs are approved. Obviously, the most common is PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. That is probably, uh, we have four or five checkpoint inhibitors approved for various cancers, both in hematologic malignancies like Hodgkin's lymphoma, and also in a number of solid tumor cancers for which the approvals are ongoing and to some extent continue to every year expand their use in oncology indications. CTLA-4 inhibitors, there are obviously several of those also available, the most prominent being ipilimumab, but there are others as well. And these drugs are also approved in certain contexts, often not as extensive as pdl one inhibitors for a number of reasons that we'll talk about. But these are two different checkpoints on the T-cells that we know now how to target for which there's a number of drugs approved. And what I would add is that, um, as mentioned in this slide, and though this is not absolute, that it appears that CTLA-4 may have a greater role uh, when the T-cells are being primed by the antigen-presenting cells in the lymphoid tissue. And that is probably the reason why with anti-CTLA-4 we see a much more uh, diff sort of uh, systemic uh, immune activity, whereas the PD-1, PD-L1 checkpoint may have a greater relevance in the tumor micro uh, environment, and so the immune-related AEs may not be as pronounced with the anti-PD-1, PD-L1. Though this is uh, a generalization, there is a role for anti-CTLA-4 even within the tumor uh, microenvironment. Uh, and this is a factor, particularly when we combine these agents, uh, both in terms of efficacy, but also in terms of toxicity. And that is definitely a reason to look at other checkpoints. Yeah, great point, uh, Shirish. And I think that, uh, you know, that brings us on Tigit. So I'll let you uh, briefly give us some background on this new novel checkpoint. So um, what I would say is that uh, what is recognized is though we have been focused on CTLA-4 and the PD-1, PD-L1 uh, pathways, uh, there are several other uh, molecules on the T cells that are both stimulatory 
uh, as well as inhibitory. Uh, and there is uh, an interest in developing drugs that inhibit the inhibitory checkpoints, whereas agonistic antibodies that activate the uh, stimulatory uh, molecules present on the T cells with the hope uh, that either as single agents or in combination with the currently available checkpoints, we could enhance the immune response against the cancer uh, even greater. It is quite likely uh, that these checkpoints play an important role in patients uh, who do not derive as much benefit from the current checkpoint inhibitors uh, as uh, may be seen with these uh, drugs in development. One such protein rather is Tigit, and Zev is going to now discuss the uh, biology of this Tigit pathway and its interaction uh, with its ligands as well as its uh, uh, the benefits of co-inhibiting Tigit and PD-1. Thanks, Shirish. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, we're seeing other ones like WAG3 inhibitors that will probably soon find their way into development, certainly already have evidence that they may work with PD-1 inhibitors in melanoma, for example, and other more uh, checkpoints along the way. Now for Tigit, um, which is somewhat unique in that it isn't present at all, it seems, other than on T cells or natural killer cells, it's a checkpoint discrete from the other checkpoints. And by that, I mean, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a requirement of uh, PD-1 and CTLA-4 overlapping, although in most of these cases it is. And by that, I mean that the ligands that bind are discrete from the known ligands that bind PD-L1 and CTLA-4. The primary ligand of binding is something called PVR, otherwise known as CD-155. And this seems to be the primary important ligand that is known to bind uh, to the TIGIT receptor and essentially providing the inhibitory signal that it does. The premise being if we can block that TIGIT, we can therefore prevent the binding of those ligands and functionally uh, in the same way that we do with the PDL1 and PD1 interaction. Now, there are a whole bunch of issues with respect to what we don't understand. And by that, I mean, this is, I'd say it at its early phase, TIGIT biology. It's certainly not as well understood as PD-1, PD-LA-1 interactions and CTLA-4 for that matter. There seems to be um, no presence of TIGIT as far as we're aware on tumor cells itself, that it's discreetly on T cells and to some extent on natural killer cells as mentioned. But that interaction between TIGIT and PVR provides an immunosuppressive environment, which leads to increased activation of dendritic cells, increased activation of other cells that leads to a profound immunosuppressive environment. So if we can limit that environment by somehow blocking it, that's the, the premise in, in this case. So one of the interesting factors is how these checkpoint inhibitors interplay with each other. I think we're going to see a lot more about this topic in the next few years, but we recognize already that there's convergence between TIGIT and PD-1. And a recent manuscript published, led by scientists at Genentech, tried to get some hypothesis-generating ideas about what the convergence is. It seems to be that TIGIT only competes with CD226 for ligand binding. Remember that the primary ligand for TIGIT is CD155 or PVR. And here the competition is with another ligand, CD226. 
There's also direct interplay between co-stimulatory and co-inhibitory molecules that are blocking different elements of, of checkpoint inhibitors on these, on these cells. And by that I mean there have been several mechanisms that have been hypothesized to understand how they both may work to regulate CD226. Sharish, I wonder if you can comment on some of that uh, interplay as well. Yeah, so what this paper to me highlighted was the relevance of the co-stimulatory molecules. We were aware of the relevance of CD28 uh, in the activity of anti-PD-1 agents in that uh, if uh, an anti-PD-1 agent is given for the T cells to be uh, activated, you not only need that uh, inhibition of PD-1, but then the co-stimulatory molecules such as CD28 and CD226 need to be uh, activated for the T cells to then have an effector function against the cancers. Um, it appears from this paper that CD226 is uh, required for a response to anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 uh, agents. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, paper suggests that uh, the combination of an anti-PD-1 with an anti-digit appears to activate CD226, a co-stimulatory molecule on T-cells, far better uh, than either agent alone. And that may be the basis uh, for doing uh, dual inhibition. Well, when we speak about the drugs, and, and, and again, uh, as mentioned in the beginning, uh, tirigolumab, is probably the monoclonal antibody the furthest along in development, in clinical development, for an anti-tidget strategy. It's, as Shurish mentioned, it is a Genentech uh, molecule, and it is a fully human IgG1 kappa anti-tidget monoclonal antibody with an intact FC region. And we'll talk about that a little later, what the, the meaning of that is. And it blocks binding of tidget to the receptor, or to the ligand, PVR. And anti-tidget antibodies, such as drogolumab, the premise is, have an enhanced role to play, in particularly in combination, as Shirish mentioned, with PD-1 antibodies. These have been granted breakthrough designation by the FDA, based on some lung cancer data that Shirish will now go into. I'll point out there are many other anti-tidget molecular antibodies in clinical development, and we'll be touching on some of those at the end of this presentation. As a summary to this section, let's now take a look at a 3D animation depicting TIGIT as a novel rational immunotherapy target in oncology. We all know that the immune system can protect against cancer. However, tumor cells have evolved various ways to escape immune cell recognition and or killing. One powerful mechanism that tumors use to evade immune surveillance is an activation of immune checkpoint pathways. For example, PD-1 is an immunoinhibitory checkpoint receptor expressed on T cells and natural killer cells that interact with its ligand, PD-L1, which is frequently expressed on tumor cells to evade the immune system, promoting tumor cell survival. Use of immune checkpoint inhibitors in the form of anti-PD-L1 or anti-PD-1 antibodies can enhance cytotoxic T cell responses to tumors, causing tumor cell death. These immunotherapies are currently widely used in oncology practice, but only a small proportion of patients benefit. Additional novel approaches are needed to extend the benefits of immunotherapies to more patients with cancer. 
T-cell immunoreceptor with immunoglobulin and immunoreceptor tyrosine-based inhibitory domains, or TIGET, is a novel negative immune checkpoint expressed on T-cells and natural killer cells. TIGET is a co-inhibitory receptor that binds to its inhibitory ligand, PVR, also known as CD155, expressed on antigen-presenting cells and tumor cells in various solid and hematologic malignancies. TIGET works in conjunction with PD-1 and dampens the immune response by outcompeting its co-stimulatory counterpart, CD226, for binding with PVR. Both PD-1 and TIGET disrupt activation of the co-stimulatory receptor CD226 on T-cells and NK-cells, providing strong rationale for dual immune checkpoint inhibition. Preventing PVR TIGET signaling using anti-TIGET antibodies may restore anti-tumor immune response and amplify the anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 antibody effect. Dual immune checkpoint inhibition with anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 and anti-TIGET antibodies has been shown to synergistically enhance T-cell mediated effects, leading to tumor cell death and near complete elimination of tumors in preclinical models. There has also been compelling, promising clinical data with respect to endpoints of progression-free and overall survival in patients in randomized clinical trials. Many clinical trials are ongoing with these combinations and will be presented in the years to come. So the next module is going to discuss targeting digit in solid tumors. Um, I'm going to discuss initially the randomized phase two cityscape uh, data in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, this has led to several trials in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer as well as small cell lung cancer also in stage three disease. Uh, and then Zev is going to discuss the data in metastatic uh, esophageal cancer, but there are several tumor types where these combinations are uh, being evaluated. Uh, and because the data set that led to um, a breakthrough designation for this combination was in lung cancer, we're going to start uh, with the lung cancer data. And this uh, breakthrough designation was based on the results of the Cityscape uh, trial. Uh, this data has been previously uh, presented, but there was an update in December in the ESMO Immuno-Oncology Conference. Um, so the design of the study was patients with, uh, that were treatment naive and at stage 4 uh, non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, these tumor, The patient's tumors were tested for EGFR and ALK and they were uh, wild type for EGFR and ALK. Uh, and the patient's tumors had to have a PDL1 expression of 1% or greater uh, by the 22C3 DECO IHC assay. A total of 135 patients were enrolled and they were randomized to teregolumab plus atezolizumab at their standard doses of 600 milligrams uh, IV Q3 weeks and atezolizumab at 1200 milligrams IV Q3 weeks, uh, and uh, patients were randomized to atezolizumab plus placebo. Um, the uh, treatment was continued until progressive disease or loss of clinical benefit, so there was an opportunity to continue treatment beyond rhesus-defined progression if it was felt that the patient was deriving clinical benefit. The co-primary endpoints were overall response rate and progression-free survival with key secondary endpoints of course, of uh, toxicity, duration of response, and overall survival. 
There were exploratory endpoints of efficacy analysis by PDL1 status, and there was data on patient uh, reported outcomes. These are the baseline characteristics uh, of the uh, over 130 patients enrolled on the study, uh, and they were very well balanced it with regards to stage, sex, uh, ethnicity, uh, smoking status, uh, and uh, the PDL1 status. So, since only PDL1 positive uh, patients with only PDL1 positive non-small cell lung cancers were enrolled. About 50% of the patients were uh, PDL1 1 to 49%, uh, and uh, a little less than 50% were uh, patients with tumors that were TPS score of greater than or equal to 50%. So, this was the primary endpoint in the intent to treat a population uh, of progression free survival. Uh, there was an advantage seen with a hazard ratio of 0.62. This translated into an improvement of about 15% in the progression-free survival rate uh, at 12 months with the combination of teragolumab plus uh, atezolizumab. The median PFS was approximately 5.6 months with the combination and 3.9 months with uh, single-agent uh, atezolizumab. However, when you looked at analysis based on the PDL1 status, it appeared that the benefit was primarily seen in patients whose tumor PDL1 expression was high or uh, equal to a greater than 50%, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.29 and an impressive progression free survival of 16.6 months with the combination, whereas uh, it was 4.1 months in patients who received placebo plus atezolizumab. It appears, at least based on this exploratory subset analysis of this trial, that there did not appear to be a benefit with the combination in patients whose tumors were 1 to 49% with a median progression-free survival of 4 months with the combination uh, and 3.6 months in patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.007. Uh, this indicates that though in the overall population there was a benefit with the combination, it is quite likely that the combination is most likely to be effective in patients with, with, tumor, with a high tumor PDL1 expression. Um, there was also a trend towards improvement in overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0 0.69 with, uh, with the combination. Uh, that translated into a median overall survival of 23.2 months with the combination as compared to 14.5 months in patients who received placebo for plus atezolizumab. Clearly with immunotherapy what is impressive is that sustained benefit uh, that is observed in a proportion of patients uh, and that is sort of evident here in the survival curves when you look at the 24 month uh, survival rate which was 34.3% in patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo. And so a 13% increase uh, with a 24-month rate of 47% uh, with the combination. So almost 50% uh, survival uh, at two years uh, with the combination. And again, the benefit appears to be uh, limited to patients whose tumor PDL1 expression was high with a hazard ratio of 0 0.23 uh, and a very impressive improvement in 24 month survival rate 
of 78% uh, with the combination as compared to 33% in patients who received atezolizumab where they did whereas it did there did not appear to be a difference in survival uh, between the patients who received the combination versus the patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo uh, so the survival data was reason was consistent uh, with what was observed as regards to pro uh, progression free survival now Nivolumab is also combined with PD-1 uh, inhibitors. Rather, nivolumab is also combined with ipilimumab. That is, combination immunotherapy has been evaluated in lung cancer, and the primary uh, reservation about using such combination immunotherapy in advanced non-small cell lung cancer is that there is increased toxicity with uh, combination immunotherapy. And so, uh, in general, the toxicity was uh, somewhat higher with this combination, but very manageable. So, any cause adverse events were very similar uh, in the two arms. Uh, so were the grade 3 uh, and 4 uh, treatment-related AEs uh, in the combination. Uh, if you looked at all treatment-related AEs, there was a slight increase. Uh, and in, in, important to note that there was no difference in terms of the percentage of patients who discontinued treatment because of AEs. Uh, it was 14.9% in the patients who received the combination and 13.2% in patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo. Um, this is well reflected uh, in this uh, sort of bar graphs. Um, there does appear to be infusion-related uh, reactions seen with the combination, but doesn't appear to be much different uh, than what was... Uh, it is a somewhat higher, rather, I apologize, compared to patients who received atezolizumab or placebo. Increased risk of skin rash and pruritus. And this is one toxicity that appears to be definitely seen more commonly with the combination than seen... Uh, with the atezolizumab, but generally quite manageable. Uh, and rest of the immune-related toxicities were not as commonly seen with the combination as uh, observed with atezolizumab alone. I would point out that hypothyroidism, which is another commonly observed uh, immune-related adverse event seen with uh, atezolizumab, uh, is not as uh, not any greater or not significantly greater with the combination at least in this trial and so as uh, when you look at AST ALT elevation that is hepatitis uh, with the combination so uh, generally well tolerated though there are clearly some immune related AEs such as infusion reactions and skin rashes and arthralgias that are probably more common with the combination than uh, what was seen in patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo. Um, the study also looked at patient reported outcomes as assessed by the EORTC QLQ C30 scale. Um, and what was shown was that despite using combination immunotherapy, there was no difference as far as patient reported outcomes are concerned. That is, there was no greater toxicity translating into increased symptoms for the patient uh, based on these, on these analysis, suggesting that the ben patients, uh, the benefit that was observed with the combination was not at a cost of increased symptomatology among patients who received this combination. Uh, and when you looked at the lung cancer-related symptoms, there was an indication that there was some uh, improvement or a greater improvement 
uh, with the combination then as compared to patients who received atezolizumab alone. Um, so when you looked at the global uh, symptoms, there was no increased symptoms observed in the patients who received combination. But when you look at lung cancer related symptoms, there appears to be somewhat of a trend to improve benefit uh, with the combination. So in conclusion, uh, teragolumab plus atezolizumab provided clinical meaningful improvement in this Cityscape trial in terms of progression-free survival, overall response, overall survival in the intent to treat population as compared to patients who received atezolizumab plus placebo. With the 30 months median follow-up, the median overall survival was not reached in the PDL1 uh, high patients. Um, Tiragolumab and atezolizumab was quite well tolerated. Patients generally maintained their baseline global health status in both arms. And lung cancer-related uh, symptom burden remained minimal to moderate over time in the patients treated with teragolumab plus atezolizumab. And based on these results, uh, the FDA has granted a breakthrough designation uh, for this combination. Uh, of course, uh, further follow-up of this trial as well as the randomized trials that now have completed, randomized phase 3 trials rather, that have already completed enrollment will truly define the benefits of this combination. But this data suggests that this combination has a high promise, particularly for patients whose tumor PDL1 is high. Uh, next, Zev will discuss the data in esophageal ca uh, cancer with this combination. Thanks, Shirish. And, um, you know, the important thing and and this is one of the elements that uh you know as we rush to get novel therapies to patients we we do keep in mind that each one of these studies has already gone through a phase one study uh, for example turagolumab was dose escalated to get to the point of 600 milligrams and um, combinations with atezolizumab which of, of course is the pdl1 inhibitor that, that genentech um, of, of Genentex is the combination that we're starting with here. It doesn't mean it'll be the only combination. But, but certainly prior to that, we recognized, and I summarized it here on the left, that a, that a combination of a phase 1A and phase 1B was done in many different cancers to look at the optimal situation. And here, as Sharish alluded to, the first indication of increased efficacy was indeed in that Cityscape trial with non-small cell lung cancer, particularly the pdl one high patients. Now, amongst the GI cancers, there's recognition that esophageal cancer, and to some extent gastric cancer as well, also lend themselves to checkpoint inhibitory strategies. And by that, I mean we now have several indications for pembrolizumab and nivolumab in gastroesophageal cancers, both in the adjuvant setting and in the metastatic setting. So there's recognition that within the GI oncology milieu, the esophageal and gastric cancer patients are the group of patients who seem to have some benefit, which can be also in selected patients, to uh, PD-1 inhibition. And so this trial, which uh, I was able to present last year at ESMO GI, looked at an expansion cohort of patients with esophageal cancer, regardless of their histology, which included both squamous cell and adenocarcinoma, and looked at the combination of tiragolumab and atezolizumab. 
The, this was a small study, of course, because at that time uh, it was being done in multiple cancers at once, and we were interested in particularly focused in on esophageal cancer because, as mentioned, we knew that pdl one inhibition has a role, but doesn't do as well as in lung cancer. So we're trying to expand the group of patients that get benefits. So here are the 21 patients who were on an expansion course. They were a mixture, as you can see, of squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. It was a global trial, so in the east, Far East or, or Southeast Asia in particular, there's a much greater tendency to have squamous cell, whereas in the Western world and United States and Europe, we're a little more commonly seen adenocarcinomas of the esophagus. Now in this study, um, which really combined the two, as Sharish mentioned, the combination was tolerable. There was an increased immune-mediated adverse event profile as recognized from single-agent checkpoint inhibitors. I certainly agree with Sharish that the predominant combination toxicity with this, combina with this combination seems to be dermatologic in nature. There's definitely an increase of rash uh, in these patients, and I've seen it myself in a number of these patients. But overall, this is a well-tolerated combination that doesn't include chemotherapy. So there's an interest in obviously trying to develop a non-chemotherapy strategy for patients with esophageal cancer as well. Uh, just like our friends in lung cancer have done successfully. But as you can see, we have to be in mind, as we combine immunotherapy drugs, we're going to get increased immune-mediated side effects. They're not always reflected as grade 3 to 4 adverse events, as Shurish mentioned, but certainly grade 1 to 2 events are increased when we combine both CTLA-4 and PD-1, or TIGIT PD-1, or LAG-3 PD-1. We're going to see them. Now, the efficacy of this uh, population was encouraging. Uh, esophageal cancer that's heavily pretreated is not one that usually lends itself to respond to anything, unfortunately. And this is a group of patients who had progressed on standard chemotherapy options, which included both Folfox or Capox and oftentimes uh, second-line agents such as taxanes as well. And so what we were facing with is a circumstance where we didn't expect a high rate of response because single-agent checkpoint inhibitors don't have a high rate of response in that context. Now, here we reported that of the efficacy of valuable patients, which were only 18 for confirmed responses, we had five responses out of 18, which was encouraging, and I'm not, I don't think it's uh, uh, anything that um, we're satisfied with, to be candid, but certainly encouraging that there may be something to this combination immunotherapy strategy in a disease like esophageal cancer, particularly because the disease control rate uh, was about 50%, 9 out of the 18 patients. A number of these patients were, were quite durable. As you can see here on the spider plots, that if the patients responded, which included both squamous and adenohistologies, many of the responses were quite durable. So duration of response among the group of patients who responded was 15 months with the combination of turagolumab and atezolizumab. Now, what that... Our conclusions from that were certainly that this activity warrants further investigation and accordingly there are large trials being launched in esophageal cancer to look at this combination. However, the last few years in esophageal cancer have seen changes in the treatment landscape recognizing that now up front all patients receive a checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy. So unfortunately unlike non-small cell lung cancer, we are not able to develop uh, checkpoint inhibitor strategies by themselves without chemotherapy so far. It has been essential to reach a larger group of patients 
with a chemotherapy backbone. And that has now shifted the focus of these combinations of turagolumab and atezolizumab to be combined with chemotherapy for at least the first four months of treatment, four to six months of treatment uh, with combination chemotherapy. Now, as we mentioned, uh, turagolumab is the monoclonal antibody targeting digit that is the furthest along in clinical development. And you can see here, we listed several of the, many of the ongoing randomized phase three trials, which will be read out, some of which will be read out possibly this year in 2022. As Sharish mentioned, there's already a completed study of first line non-small cell lung cancer in PD-L1 high patients, which has completed enrollment, essentially uh, a phase three hopefully confirmatory study of the cityscape results. There's also ongoing studies in small cell lung cancer in stage three unresectable non-small cell lung cancer, neoadjuvant approaches, and even in patients with perhaps with combination chemotherapy. Separate from non-small cell lung cancer, we've got two trials ongoing in esophageal cancer, one of which is uh, predominantly in, in Southeast Asia, looking at a different chemotherapy backbone focused on squamous cell populations. And another is in locally advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus, looking at the interplay between tergolumab, atezolizumab, and chemoradiation in those patients who themselves are not uh, resected. So patients who are non-resectable or not deemed to be resectable for esophageal cancer are randomized on that study to standard chemoradiation or chemoradiation with the addition of um, these two antibodies. Beyond that, there's large studies which will be read out in cervical cancer and squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. So we expect the next year or two to be busy uh, with uh, tiragolumab data um, in a number of these cancers. Now, it's important to keep in mind that there are a whole host of other anti-tigit antibodies in development. And many of these are drugs that are either in phase one or in phase one expansion studies that are probably in clinical development a few stages behind, I would say, in terms of timelines, but have also demonstrated very promising efficacy signals, particularly in PD-L1 high tumors, uh, just like tiragolumab and tezolizumab. There are a number of these that are already in phase three testing, including one by Beijing, which is ongoing in, 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 uh, in China for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And there's a whole host of others which are in phase two testing. And we've listed some of them here. The third and final module of our discussion today uh, will include a, a little bit of a discussion point about the, the future and about some of the aspects of these combination strategies that are ongoing. And I'd like to start uh, maybe, Shirish, by asking you, do, do you think in non-small cell lung cancer, for example, we already know that, I think based on the cityscape data and based on some of the data you presented, that the focus is in PD-L1 high expressing tumors. Um, but do you think there's an opportunity to develop, perhaps with chemotherapy, these combinations in PD-L1 low tumors as well? Absolutely. I think uh, I would say that uh, the data in Cityscape is very promising uh, in the PDL one high tumors. Um, there are patients even today who have a high tumor PDL one where 
we actually do land up treating them with chemotherapy and uh, uh, anti-PD-1 only because the patient has a very high tumor burden, a lot of liver mets, a lot of bone mets, and there's a little bit of a discomfort of just treating the patient with single agent uh, checkpoint inhibitor because yes, the response rates are better when you give chemo in combination with the checkpoint inhibitor. So it's not clear that that necessarily translates into a better outcome. But I think even uh, it, this cityscape data raises the possibility that even for those patients, we may be able to provide a non-chemotherapy combination uh, with uh, the combination of, uh, say, teragulamab and atezolizumab. But as you mentioned, uh, I think the promise is in areas where we are not seeing as much benefit. So when one looks at the chemotherapy checkpoint combination um, uh, data, uh, the benefit is not as robust in patients whose tumor PDL1 is either low or, or, or zero. Yes, there's an uh, improvement in progression-free survival as well as overall survival. Uh, but I think that there's room for improvement, uh, particularly in those subsets. And I think uh, poss possibly the addition of TIGIT to those patients may provide uh, that benefit where, uh, where we may see benefits similar to what is observed in the patients with high tumor PDL1. But what I am very excited about is that uh, possibly the benefits in squamous cell patients and small cell lung cancer patients. Uh, when one looks at the totality of data with checkpoint inhibitors, particularly in PDL1 low and zero, uh, the chemoimmunotherapy combination uh, may not be providing as much benefit as has been observed in the non-squamous patients. Uh, and actually, the anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1 combination may be beneficial, particularly in squamous cell patients, uh, in patients whose tumor PDL one uh, is zero. Uh, but as we discussed in the past, uh, that combination is associated with somewhat of a higher toxicity. And so in particular with the low PDL1 or zero PDL1 squamous cell patients, uh, I'm extremely interested in finding out what uh, adding TIGIT to a chemo anti-PD1 combination, what added benefit is provided. And then small cell lung cancer, uh, as is well recognized, uh, though we have approval of atezolizumab and durvalumab in combination with chemotherapy in small cell lung cancer patients, uh, the benefit is relatively modest. There's no improvement in progression-free survival. The median survival is improved by two months. Uh, so again, a group of patients that may benefit with the addition uh, of uh, anti-TIGIT. But I, I think uh, as is true with other uh, immune-based therapies, and I think with your phase one exp uh, experience, you can you can talk to this better than I can. Uh, I think it is going to be critical to identify uh, biomarkers that will define the patients that are most likely to benefit with the addition of TIGIT to these uh, uh, to anti-PD-1 therapy, either with or without chemotherapy. Uh, and, and I think that hopefully these trials not only show an improved benefit, but help us recognize who are the patients who are most likely to benefit with the addition uh, of these drugs. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that, um, you know, first of all, in, in lung cancer and esophageal cancer, we have something in common, which we also see this different dynamics between squamous cell and adenocarcinoma and, and recognizing it's different biology sometimes and certainly different um, 
expression of whether it's PDL1 or, or other uh, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So for example, in squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus, there was a very large study just done uh, called Checkmate 648 that actually did show that the combination of uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab was better than chemotherapy, but the third arm was even more superior, which was chemotherapy plus nivolumab. So, so recognizing that uh, that is an example in squamous cell where actually, okay, we do have benefit with a non-chemotherapy backbone, but it's perhaps not optimal. Perhaps just because it doesn't have chemotherapy um, isn't necessarily the best way to treat these patients. I, I think the, the, as opposed to adenocarcinoma, where we, we very much feel with adenocarcinoma the esophagus, for the most part, we're going to need some chemotherapy in there, that the going it alone with uh, either double immune blockade or certainly with single immune blockade outside of MSI high, which is a very rare and, and an important subset in GI cancers, um, is probably not going to be um, superior to most chemotherapy strategies. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the recognition that, you know, the different biological subsets within squamous cell and adenocarcinoma are themselves going to behave differently is going to play a big role in the next few years. We're all hopeful, we always want in, in GI cancers to be a little bit like our lung cancer colleagues right now where we can offer patients um, single agent drugs or uh, single agent or combination immunotherapies without chemotherapy. But by and large, so far, even in gastroesophageal cancer, it's been predominantly chemotherapy backbones. Reflecting the biomarker point, which is, a, which is very important that you mentioned, Sharish, I think that um, you know, TIGIT is a very different, uh, we don't have a validated biomarker yet. Um, many people in gastric cancer aren't even sure if PDL1 is a validated biomarker for, for, t for PD1 antibodies, but we certainly don't have anything even that robust in, in gastroesophageal cancers where um, we're a little ways behind. I will say that in most of my experience with the phase ones with these TIGIT antibodies, the focus has been on trying to see if, as was demonstrated in your study, is it exclusively this PDL1 high population, or, or can we make the existing PD1 inhibitors work better in a PDL1 low setting? And that, and that I think, is, is, is one of the biomarkers that people are focused on, indeed, on PDL1. Beyond that, there is a slew of experimental antibodies. They're not going to be, I don't think, something like TIGIT expression or something like, or, or something immunohistochemical on the tumor. I think it's going to be a very, very different biomarker uh, development strategy that may, uh, whether it's going to be a gene expression profile that lends itself maybe to combination immunotherapy strategies or uh, biomarkers we've not yet heard of, but it certainly doesn't appear to be on the surface to be ligand expression or immunistochemical expression of TIGIT um, that will give us the biomarker uh, that we need for selected patients. So a lot more work is going to be focused on in these next few years. I want to spend a few minutes uh, talking about toxicity here because I think you know we, we talk a lot about the fact that there's no differences in grade three and four adverse events between these combinations, but there is a difference in grade one, two events. And, I think that we have to be mindful of the um, toxicities for patients that can be, in some cases, uh, difficult um, and require management. Um, and, and, you know, I know you have experience with other 
combination uh, checkpoint inhibitors. In my experience, one of the biggest strategies, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be dermatologic. I think we are seeing increased rates of rash. And, and keep in mind that rash, reporting rash as a grade three event often means an extremely serious rash. So, so a grade two rash can be quite bothersome and troubling to patients, even though it doesn't meet the technical criteria of a grade three event. That to me has been one of the single standouts, both with my experience with Jirogolmab and Atezo, but also even with phase one studies that I've done with other uh, TIGID inhibitors. I wonder if you can comment on, on some of these other uh, possible expected toxicities that we're going to encounter with double immune blockade. I agree with you. And I would say that the one other thing I've seen is a little bit higher infusion reactions. I think that there is uh, somewhat more than uh, what I have seen with uh, at least anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 uh, agents. I agree with you about skin rash. And I would highlight, like to highlight that there's quite a bit of pruritus. And in a few of my patients, the pruritus has bothered them uh, more than the rash. The rash is discomforting, but but can be. Having said that, I will say, and again, uh, I, I, I can't claim to have extensive experience, but just overall, the combination appears somewhat better tolerated than my experiences with ipilimumab and and um, and uh, anti-PD-1 agents. I would particularly point out that I've not seen the colitis that sometimes can occur with uh, anti-CTLA-4 uh, agents. And I think uh, there's a possibility that the combination uh, may land up, even though it is dual immunotherapy, I mean, a combination immunotherapy rather, uh, that the overall tolerability would somewhat better. But absolutely agree. Uh, we'll need to be very vigilant about managing uh, with, uh, you know, either local sort of steroid applications or, or sometimes even systemic treatments to take care of this um, uh, skin is uh, dermatologic adverse events is something that will need uh, extra attention from treating physicians. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, to your point about the combination, comparing combinations of double immune blockade um, ends up becoming a tricky thing. I think mechanistically, as, as we talked about earlier, the impact of blocking CTLA-4 is very different in the immune system, as you mentioned, than compared to blocking TIGID and PD-1. So, so in some respects, I, I agree with you, and that's not a surprise necessarily that the impact of a CTLA-4 combination with PD-1 will have more immune engagement and, and often lead to more, at least, uh, organ damage um, as it relates to um, toxicities such as colitis or endocrinopathies. Interestingly, with the, with the tirigolmab combinations, we are also seeing subtle changes in thyroid function, subtle changes in endocrinopathies that are, that are, I think, to some extent, we're becoming more comfortable with in, in oncology. But absolutely agree. We need to engage our dermatologists or endocrinologists. This is, this is going to be a, a important for us to manage these toxicities for the foreseeable future. I wanted to spend a few minutes uh, talking about an individual case that actually I presented in the context of that presentation and, and is an interesting reminder of, of you know, what we feel, uh, what we don't know. And, and I think that uh, this is a patient, a gentleman who enrolled in a study at our institution with metastatic esophageal adenocarcinoma, who actually had a very low PDL1 expression. And PDL1, as I mentioned, is, is a difficult marker in esophageal cancer. It is something that we 
um, have struggled with and the FDA has struggled with as well because they actually recently gave a open approval to the combination of chemotherapy plus nivolumab regardless of pdl one expression. Recognition that perhaps pdl one expression leads to better responses has been our sense in gastroesophageal cancers, but oftentimes uh, that's not the case. And here you have a fellow who has a very low pdl one expression using the Ventan SP142 assay for atezolizumab, both on the tumor cells and on the immune cells. I want to point out that, that unlike in lung cancer, we look primarily at the combination of the immune cells and tumor expression. We look at CPS scores. Um, so it's a different paradigm in some respects for how we measure uh, expression or likelihood of benefit from a checkpoint inhibitor. It's got to do with a combination of immune and a tumor, which is of course discrete from your field, Shirish. But this is a fellow who enrolled after having progressed on durable responses to some chemotherapy regimens. Well, I won't say durable, I'd say short-lived responses, excuse me, to combination chemotherapy with metastatic esophageal cancer, and really came into the study PD-1 naive. This is a few years ago, so nowadays, these patients are harder to find in, in esophageal cancer to PD-1 naive. As I mentioned, we have upfront approvals now. But here, this fellow came on with liver metastases, had a nice response and really a quick response, interestingly. And I, a little bit more than I might have expected with a single agent checkpoint inhibitor. To be frank, if he, if he came into my office today and had a low pdl one expression, we wouldn't even offer this patient a pdl one inhibitor. So here he gets on this combination immunotherapy study and has a very, very prolonged durable response of 15 months. Actually, he was on the study for greater than two years, um, having a PR for the majority of that time before finally progressing. So, you know, I think we, we really don't know, uh, you know, and, and some people would say, well, gosh, she might have done just as well with a PD-1 inhibitor. Some of the retrospective studies would suggest otherwise in a case like this, I'll point out. But, you know, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And, 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 and one of them is why certain patients respond to these agents. Um, it's a good anecdote that reminds us of, of what we don't know. Um, I wanted to thank you, Sharish, for this uh, great combination discussion. I think we're going to be hearing more about this pathway over the next few years. And thank you for having an engaged discussion on hopefully the role of adding some new checkpoint inhibitors to our uh, armamentarium. Well, I would like to thank you uh, as well. Uh, I really enjoyed this discussion and I do think that we both share a cautious optimism, if I can say, about this target and, and, and this drug and uh, hopefully will benefit more patients with uh, immunotherapy going forward. So thank you. And thank you to the audience for attending. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash EBJ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group.